Today on Blue 58, with the Packers' first preseason game just days away, it's time to start speculating as to who's going to be on the final 53-man roster. Who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble? We've got it all for you right here. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Before we dive into the meat of the content today, we're going to talk through a few of the... uh, few of the notable storylines that have emerged since we were last together. But first, a bit of a public service announcement for this time of year. It is heading towards mid-August here in northwest Ohio, which means that our good friends, the annual cicadas, have stopped by. So if you hear a little bit of that in the background, that's what it is. You can only do so much to, to get that out of the recording this time of year. So if you hear that, just picture yourself in my backyard. You're with me on my back deck, you know, if you would like to partake in a beverage, you can do that as well. We've got all sorts of stuff for you if you want to dive into that. Heck, maybe we'll uh, we'll even ba- make a, a fire in the fire pit and we can just sit there together. We'll talk through what's going on in training camp or whatever else is on your mind. It'll be a good time. Nice, relaxing summer evening. Okay, maybe that's a bit much, but I got a new toy and uh, it's fun to play with it. Make sound effects. It's very relaxing. Anyway, Training camp storyline since we've last been together. Uh, Running back battle seems to be heating up a little bit, and it seems to be narrowed down already to Kylan Hill versus Patrick Taylor. And judging by reports out of training camp, Hill seems to be a little bit ahead, but I'm willing to withhold judgment until we see these guys at actual action in pads running up and down the field. Uh, Hill does seem to have a little bit of an inside track, judging by Maurice Drayton's comments as to trying him as a kick returner on special teams. If you can contribute on special teams, that's never going to hurt you in terms of making a roster. But uh, I will be very interested to watch this this training camp battle unfold, especially because it's the best kind of training camp battle, a low-consequence one, one where we're going to get a definitive definitive resolution, but one that ultimately doesn't matter because it's for the third-string running back job, and the Packers have two pretty good running backs ahead of of whoever it is, Hill or Taylor or, heck, even Dexter Williams. Jordan Love had his first uh, real visible on-field performance Saturday night in the family night scrimmage. Difficult to watch, the not Love in particular, the, the family night scrimmage. In fact, I've only seen clips uh, on social media, unable to watch it, being out of state as we are. But he was a little bit up and down, and that is not entirely surprising. I, I think that's basically what we would expect from Jordan Love, having not played in a real game of any kind in almost two years now. The weird thing I've seen coming out of this development in, in terms of his play and getting to see him play is that there have been people framing this as, uh, ha-ha, all the doubters were wrong about his arm talent. Look, nobody ever doubted his arm. That was the entire selling point on Jordan Love basically from, from the beginning was that he had an incredible arm talent, and that's what made him worthy of a first-round pick, whether it was the Packers or somebody else. All along, though, people have questions about his accuracy and his decision-making, both of which look suspect in the things that I've seen. But it was nice to see him on the field nonetheless, and it'll be even more interesting to see him in something resembling a live-fire situation. Speaking of family night, don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Devin Funches said a dumb thing. Uh, the substance of his remark notwithstanding, it was a, a terrible thing to say, not something he should have done. This just speaks to a larger problem in training camp of avoiding unforced errors. Uh, If you're trying to make a roster spot, and I think charitably, Funches is shooting no higher than fifth on the receiver pecking order right now, the thing you don't want to make is unforced errors. 
And as it stands, the only injury to come out of family night was Devin Funches shooting himself in the foot. Just don't screw it up for yourself. On the more positive side of things, we've got three players really turning heads in training camp, it seems. First, Kavion Ento seems to be, I guess, completing his transition from wide receiver to defensive back. The physical talent has always been there for him. Just look at his jumping numbers uh, to say nothing else of his overall athletic ability. He's a, a nice length, height, size, speed prospect. Height, weight, speed, I guess is the, the expression I was going for. But he can jump out of the gym, too, 41-inch vertical, and a, a big, long, broad jump, too. I, I don't even remember the number off the top of my head, but he tested off the charts in both both places. And now it appears that he is pairing that with some actual on-the-field acumen, too. So great to see there. He's a nice undrafted free agent story, and if he makes the roster, uh, so much the better. It also appears that Ben Braden, if not certified legit at this point, is at least not going away. This is a big wait-and-see storyline from this offseason because a couple coaches, Adam Stenovich in particular, were raving about the things that Ben Braden could do as a tackle. Now, it seems that things have cooled off a little bit at the Ben Braden potential week one starting left tackle storyline, but it seems like he is getting to be more settled in at guard. With Dennis Kelly now in camp on the outside, you really don't need him as much at tackle anyway, so it's nice to have him settle that one position where he can really try to settle in and and make something happen. And now it seems to be at least a three-person race at guard for however many guard spots they have up for um, for competition there. It's Lucas Patrick and John Runyon and now Ben Braden for sure. Finally, Tipa Gallia getting some praise as well. Outside linebackers coach Mike Smith saying this week, quote, if that joker can put on 10 more pounds, he's got a demon now. He plays hard, very smooth, quick, great chop and spin, great counter, great get off to beat you to the edge. Got to get better with his power. And I think that's basically what we've expected from from him uh, scouting report-wise this whole time. He looked like a good athlete coming out of Utah State, but only 229 pounds, still listed at that hilariously light weight as well. But there are some huge opportunities there for Galliai or whoever uh, for that fourth edge rusher spot, maybe a fifth edge rusher spot, and on special teams, especially with Randy Ramsey not looking like a good bet to be available this season, for sure not in the early portions of the season, if you believe the early reporting out of Wisconsin on that. So people making moves, and there are opportunities to be had with those moves in training camp. We got a good question this week uh, in Discord, and I wanted to take a second and uh, review that. Discord user QHM asks, I think it's fair at this point, we have all, uh, fair to say at this point, excuse me, that we have all felt the energy and excitement around what Rashawn Gary is going to be doing this year. While I'm excited as the next person and truly believe he could make the leap, the leap to being a star in the NFL, what do you guys think is a realistic view of what we can hope for from his production this season? It is a fair question. I think it's it's safe to say that there's a fair bit of excitement around Rashawn Gary, but what actually is uh, is realistic to expect in terms of, of numbers. So we talked about this a little bit in our Setting Expectations series, but we didn't talk in terms of hard numbers all that much. Basically just continue doing what they're, what they're doing and, and play like the number two edge rusher we know that he is. In terms of hard numbers, though, I think there are two things you can look at. First, he's got to keep increasing his pressure rate. According to Pro Football Focused, his pressure rate in 2019 was about 10.5%. That's 16 pressures on 152 rushes. In 2020, it was 13.2%. He had 46 pressures on 349 rushes. 
If you can bump that up to about 15% in 2021, I think, uh, I think we're headed in the right direction. I also want to see him get his total pressures up. So he had 16 in 19 games in 2019. He had 46 in 19 games in 2020. This is counting postseason. And if he got to 15% in, um, in 2021, say he had about 400 pass rushes, 15%, a 15% pressure rate would be at about 60 pressures across 17 games. That's not too bad. Three and a half per game, pretty reasonable. In 2019, Preston Smith had 62 pressures in 19 games. The year prior, playing with Washington, he had 53 in 16. I think asking Rashawn Gary to be slightly better than the best version of Preston Smith seems pretty reasonable, given what we've seen from him athleticism-wise and given that he was just the 12th overall pick a couple years back. Now in his third year, having experience, now going to get more opportunities, presumably moving up the depth chart a little bit, Getting to 15% pressure rate, getting to 60 or so total pressures, I think is eminently doable in 2021. And if you can do those things, the counting stats are going to start to go up. The tackles for loss, the sacks, those splash plays, those are going to go up too. They'll come along with those numbers continuing to trend in the right number or in the right direction from Rashawn Gary. This should show how achievable things are for Gary because he's done things in the past that are not all that dissimilar. It's just been limited by the number of opportunities that he's had. But I think this year it should all be coming together. He should have the opportunity uh, to be on the field more consistently. And if he can pair that with just the, the increased production we've seen over the past couple of years, more success should follow. That question, of course, coming via Discord, the best way, the only way to get involved on our Discord server is to be a Patreon subscriber, supporter, I want to give a shout-out to three Patreon supporters today, Joe, John Fiore, and Christian Cunningham, each of whom has been a contributor to Patreon since 2020. If you want to contribute, if you want to get in on uh, bonus content there, some of which is being released right after I finish recording this episode, all you got to do is head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep, sign up for any amount uh, to contribute, and uh, you will be included in that Discord server and uh, in whatever bonus content we are able to pull out. All right, it's time to uh, dive into our first roster prediction of training camp. Before we do the actual position-by-position preview, I want to take a second to look back at the Packers' trend over the past couple of years. In fact, over the past 10 years. This prompted by a question, again, from our Discord server. Old Packers fans wrote in and said, uh, I have a lot of roster composition questions. I think the interesting approach would be statistical. The Packers have... Norms for each position group. A discussion about how many quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, etc. have been retained over the last X number of years could provide some perspective about what to expect. That window could be Gutekunst 10 years or Gutekunst and Thompson. Against the Packers' historical norms, the roster bubble might appear clear. And I think that is the case. Uh, Doing a little research this afternoon, prepping for this podcast, I looked over the past 10 years of opening week rosters and came to some interesting conclusions. Methodology-wise, I went to uh, the NFL's Game Stats and Information server and looked at the game books for every week one game for the past 10 years. Every Packers game, that is. Every game in the NFL, that would have been an awful lot. On average, over the past 10 years, the Packers have kept two and a half quarterbacks on their week one roster, 4.2 running backs and fullbacks, just under six receivers, 3.7 tight ends, 8.4 offensive linemen, just under six defensive linemen, 
nine linebackers and edge rushers, just under 11 defensive backs, 10.7, and three specialists. They've kept three on the opening roster each and every year. That is not a super big surprise. In terms of overall trends, the Packers are trending away a little bit from linebackers and edge rushers to a more defensive back-heavy defense. That's not all that surprising under Mike Pettin and probably should be uh, the case again under Joe Barry. The, there was only one time in the past five years where they kept fewer than 11 defensive backs. And the last time they kept double-digit linebacker and edge rushers was 2015. So they're trending a little bit smaller, a little bit faster. Six wide receivers seems like a really safe bet. They've only kept seven three times in the past 10 years, but it's averaged about to about uh, six per year uh, with a couple exceptions in there. Last year uh, in week one, they had just five receivers on their opening roster. Same for 2017, same for 2015. In fact, there was a three-year run from 2014 through 2015 where they only uh, had, they had five wide receivers on the opening week roster each and every year. Uh, the Packers are also trending a little bit away from from tight ends, or, they, or they're trending back towards tight ends, excuse me. Uh, they had four last year and four two of the last three years. For the late McCarthy tenure, they had three tight ends on the roster most, year, most years. 15, 16, and 17, they had just three tight ends on the final roster, uh, the opening roster of the year. And the Packers also, uh, it's a pretty safe bet that they will have nine offensive linemen on their week one roster. They've had that each of the last four years. And historically, there have only been two times uh, in the past, well, four times, excuse me, in the past 10 years where they've had fewer than nine. Only one time in the past six years has that happened, though. Uh, So that's the overall trends. In terms of week one, uh, I feel pretty good about these predictions. Obviously, if if injuries rear up this year again, these will change a little bit. Uh, And we have things going a little bit differently this year uh, in that there are three roster cutdown dates after each of the um, three preseason games. So they'll they'll have a game this weekend, then they'll have their first cutdown, and they'll have a second game, and then another one, and then the final one after the third preseason game. Yep, that is how three cutdown dates work, John, obviously. All right, offense first, then defense. I've got the Packers sticking with two quarterbacks. This was my post-NFL draft prediction. Sticking with it here. Uh, As nice a story as Kurt Bankert is, I think it's going to be Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love alone on the 53-man roster with Bankert on the practice squad. At running back, I think it's going to be three. Uh, There are no traditional fullbacks on the roster, though you could count, say, a guy like Josiah DeGuara as a fullback if you really want to. Dominique Daphne, probably two, but we've been over that before. They're tight ends, technically, but will do some fullback-like things. With that in mind, I think the three backs the Packers keep are Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, and Kylan Hill. I think Kylan Hill is going to get the benefit of the doubt, uh, unless proven otherwise by Patrick Taylor and Dexter Williams. And that hurts a little bit to say as somebody who's been a Patrick Taylor fan for a while now. Wide receivers, this is the contentious one right now. Uh, there are three guys fighting for, I think, the sixth spot here, and I think the sixth spot is going to go to Juwan Winfrey. The other five receivers should be pretty obvious. Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, and Amari Rogers. Not a big surprise there. I think everybody understands those five guys are as, as big a lock as you pretty much can be in the preseason. Barring injury, those guys are going to be on the roster. You're not cutting Devontae Adams. Mar- MVS is completely unique on the roster. Alan Lazard is also fairly unique. 
Uh, Cobb is here at the request of Assistant General Manager Aaron Rodgers, and of course, Mari Rodgers, a third-round pick this year, and he is looking good in camp. It would be a huge historical outlier for him to be cut anyway, but he would have to be pretty, pretty darn bad to justify being cut at this point, given that it sounds like he's been performing pretty well. A tight end, I think it's four. Isaac Nauda's making a push, but I don't think he's going to do it given what, what's ahead of him. Jay Sternberger actually gets a bit of a, a break here. His suspension may save him a roster spot. The Packers can kick the can on making a decision on him down the road a ways. That leaves them with four guys, I think, that are going to make the roster, though. It's going to be Robert Tunyon, Mercedes Lewis, uh, Josiah DeGuara, and Dominique Daphne. It could be Nauda, but I think Daphne's got the inside track, uh, given how he performed last year, and I think he's a better athlete overall uh, than his other counterpart there at tight end. Uh, Bronson Kalfusi would be a nice story, but I think that's a big ask, given what else the Packers have at the position. Just look at the breakdown there. You've got the, the big receiver type in Tunyon, you've got the blocker in Lewis, and you've got your two H-back types in whatever combination you want between DeGuara, Daphne, and Nauda. Where does where does Bronson Kalfusi fit in there? It really doesn't doesn't look like he's got a spot. Offensive line, we've had a couple developments here since the last time we talked. Uh, I still think David Bakhtiari starts the year on the physically unable to perform list or maybe injured reserve with a couple maneuvers following that. But uh, it's going to be Bakhtiari uh, on the outside, at least for right now. Um, So not on the week one roster. Other than that, I think it's uh, Elton Jenkins at left tackle, uh, John Runyon or Ben Braden at left guard, uh, Josh Myers at center, Lucas Patrick or Ben Braden or John Runyon at right guard, and Billy Turner at right tackle. So there you've got, I guess, technically six guys already because you've got your starting five and then whatever guard is in there as well, Braden, Patrick, or Runyon. But then beyond them, uh, I think it's going to be Royce Newman, uh, Dennis Kelly, and I think Yash Nyman gets one more look here as the ninth offensive lineman, though I have not heard a single thing about him in camp so far. There are two changes since the last time we spoke here. Uh, Simon Stepanak has retired, and I think Cole Van Lannen is just going to end up on the practice squad here because uh, he's probably a guard at this point. And with Braden ahead of him and Royce Newman being a higher draft pick this year and also having probably a little bit more tackle ability than Van Lannen does, I think Van Lannen ends up on the outside looking in. So your your four backups would be Royce Newman, Ben Braden, Dennis Kelly, and Yash Nyman. On the defensive line, I think they've got five here. Kenny Clark, Dean Lowry, and Kingsley Kiki will be your nominal starters in the in the 3-4 base. And Tyler Lancaster and TJ Slayton will be the guys beyond that. Josh Avery, I think, is going to make a real push here in the preseason. Uh, so I think maybe watch for him to try to steal a roster spot there. If somebody gets bumped, it's probably Tyler Lancaster. And Avery is the most similar to him, a big-bodied, uh, good-testing player. Uh, Lancaster, I think, is is the fifth of those five guys, just given what we've seen from him over the past couple of years. And he's certainly not going to bump off TJ Slayton. So if there's somebody fighting for a roster spot, it is Lancaster. Right now I've got five at outside linebacker and four at inside linebacker, bringing the total up to nine for those two positions, sticking with the backers historical average there. Zedaria Smith and Rashawn Gary are your starters at the nominal outside linebacker position, edge rush, or whatever you want to call it. Those two are your top guys. Preston Smith, the number three after that. Then it gets interesting. I like Jonathan Garvin as a ready-made replacement for Randy Ramsey. He already played a similar role to Ramsey last year, so why not just 
bump him in for that spot this year. Beyond him, though, I think Tipagalei is your your fifth or fourth edge rusher, depending how the uh, the depth chart shakes out. Uh, but uh, I like him as the the next man up in that situation, and might have even made it outright. Uh, but I think uh, it's those two for the fourth and fifth edge rushers. At inside backer, Devondre Campbell and Chris Barnes are probably your starters. And then I think Isaiah McDuff- McDuffie and Ty Summers take it from there. Kamal Martin would be a somewhat surprising cut at this point, but if they're already shifting him around position-wise, I don't think that bodes too well for him uh, here in his second year. If you're already playing the, uh, well, let's see if we can switch him to a different position and get a little bit more out of him game. I think you're behind the eight ball there already as a second-year player. So I don't think uh, I don't think the odds are, are very strongly in favor of Kamal Martin there. And right now I'd say he's on the outside looking in. At corner, I think your six are going to be Jair Alexander, Eric Stokes, Eric Stokes, Kevin King, Chandon Sullivan, Shamar John Charles, and Kadar Holman. I think Holman is still ahead of Ento at this point, but I'm willing to be wrong on that. And I think that'll be the thing to watch uh, on special teams, especially here in the early going. Is it Holman or is it Ento uh, playing those special teams reps? Finally, at safety, I've got six guys sticking around. So that would bring us to a total of 12 defensive backs. Uh, Adrian Amos and Darnell Savage are your starters. Then Will Redmond, Vernon Black, Henry Black, or Vernon Scott and Henry Black, excuse me, and Christian Uphoff making it as an undrafted free agent rookie. You might be able to swap Ennis Gaines in there for one of those back four guys. He seems to be making a push lately in camp, but right now I'm standing pat with those six guys. So 12 defensive backs in total. I've got 24 offense, 26 defense, and three specialists. The one special teams competition uh, seems to have been resolved, so that leaves us with J.K. Scott, Mason Crosby, and Hunter Bradley. Things could still short out or sort out a little bit differently with J.K. Scott, but I still think he is the ahead of Ryan Winslow, just being the incumbent there. Mason Crosby is not in a real roster competition, and then Hunter Bradley saw his only competition released this week. So um, I guess that tells the story there at uh, at Long Snapper, uh, barring some unseen developments down the stretch here in camp. So that's my prediction. Uh, I will have an article up at uh, thepowersweep.com at some point in the next couple of days, writing all this out for you to take a look there. But what do you think? Right, wrong, uh, good, bad, indifferent? What do you think? I would love to hear your thoughts on this and uh, interact with your predictions as well, because that's what this time of the year is all about. Let's talk about a book. Blood, Sweat, and Chalk Chapter 14 talks about the air raid offense. Uh, Almost a footnote uh, in the grand scheme of this book, but we've had three-ish chapters now on different versions of the spread offense, and the air raid, to me, is the most interesting of those three versions of the spread. In terms of overall impressions on this chapter, I think the last line is the most interesting. Quote, perhaps the most telling measure of the Air Raid's efficiency is that none of those Red Raider quarterbacks have been successful in the NFL. They were, in fact, made by the offense. End quote. I'm not sure what to make about this point here. Uh, This is going to sound a little bit like uh, that true communism has never been tried trope you see on social media now and then, but how do we really know that these players couldn't have been successful in an offense more suited to their skills? Does that automatically mean that, you know, since they succeeded outside or did not succeed outside of this offense, that they're not any good or that they were in fact made entirely by this offense? 
it could mean that, but I'm not entirely convinced. It could just mean that they need a specific specific set of circumstance stances in which to succeed. And they were a lot of these air raid quarterbacks, whether it's at Texas Tech or otherwise, have been very successful in college football. And I think it's odd that this point comes up here because this entire book so far has basically been an explanation about why fitting your scheme to your players is so important. I don't know why we would act surprised at this point when guys are not able to be successful outside a scheme that does not really work for them. Isn't it about players and not plays? I guess it could be that there are some plays and some circumstances that are going to work only for some players, or some players are only going to be able to work with certain plays, but I don't think that makes them necessarily bad players. Now, of course, having seen one of these Texas Tech quarterbacks up close in Green Bay, uh, I think it would have been tough for Graham Harrell to succeed in an NFL offense specifically built for him. I uh, just did not have the arm strength, and it did not look like he could process things quickly enough to succeed at an NFL level, where an air raid offense is very, I guess, just look and throw type stuff. Um, you know who should be open on a given play, given that you've executed it a billion times in practice. And if it's not there, well, I guess things break down pretty quickly. But in the air raid in college, it's almost always there. And as we move on to more interesting points in, in particular from this chapter, just as a broader point, I think you should you would be shocked at how simple an air raid offense playbook is. In an air raid playbook, you have a handful of plays executed to perfection. I've got the, uh, the I think it's Kentucky playbook, maybe Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma uh, from when Mike Leach was there running the air raid offense. Um, got it from footballxos.com. You should look that site up if you haven't. There's a great resource of playbooks there. But this one is worth a look through because there's only like a dozen plays or so in it. But it's all about executing those plays to perfection. And this gives me another opportunity to recommend the excellent book, The Perfect Pass by S.C. Gwynn. It's all about the development of the air raid offense, specifically how Hal Mummy and Mike Leach developed it over their college career, both uh, together and separately in various coaching stops throughout most of the southern parts of the United States. They don't have a lot of plays. It's about executing those few plays at a very, very high level. And the air raid, I think, is one of the first real attempts of uh, boiling football down to math. So there's a realization in the air raid offense that passing is the most efficient, so we should pass as much as possible. But also, we'll run if running becomes more efficient. This is the entire premise behind the second play that they highlight specifically from the air raid offense in this chapter, the draw trap. You get everybody so used to passing, then all of a sudden, oops, you're suddenly faced with the big back coming downhill with a head of steam and you know running towards you as you're already running backwards. There's the, there's the draw trap. This was basically the entire premise behind the existence of former Packers running back Alex Green, who had some enormous seasons at Hawaii. So he's six feet tall, 220 pounds, and his final, well, I guess for the balance of his career at Hawaii, he averaged 7.1 yards per carry running out of a spread look. I guess technically with June Jones or his successor there, it would have been a run-and-shoot type offense, but it's the same sort of principle. You get him really used to passing, and then suddenly you're coming downhill with a big back out of a spread look. The air raid offense is wonderfully efficient in that way. 
you can generate a lot of offense in a hurry just by doing the easy things. And passing very often is more easy than running. But if you pass often enough, uh, running becomes pretty easy in some ways too. In terms of Packers connections, Mike Holmgren and Andy Reid get some obvious mentions here. Holmgren, the I think more interesting of the two, uh, he spent a lot of time at BYU. He was hired by Norm Chow and learned under Lavelle Edwards there and uh, was able to apply a lot of his knowledge uh, to what he did down the road uh, with Bill Walsh, with the 49ers there, and then ultimately with the Green Bay Packers and beyond, winning a Super Bowl for his trouble uh, with the Packers. Uh, you also get a mention of Lindy Infante, who got interviewed by Mike Leash about something he didn't even invent, the smash passing concept, which is great. Uh, it was a great nugget because I, I think it shows just how things um, things spread in the NFL. Because Mike Leach sees the Packers running smash and it works. So he also sees the 49ers running it. And he goes and asks Lindy Infante about it. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm happy to tell you, but I think we got it from the 49ers too. And these ideas just spread. Uh, people just ask each other what's going on. And uh, that's how ideas work their way through the football world. That's been one of my takeaways, my favorite takeaways from reading, I guess rereading this book, is uh, ideas can spread. And they spread quickly, and uh, they really shape the game quickly through that spread. That's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you listening in. appreciate you um, uh, sticking around for this longer episode. 30 minutes and counting. That's good stuff. It's been a lot of fun. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and you think somebody else would enjoy it as well, it'd mean a lot to me if you would share it. That is the number one way we grow, is uh, through your sharing of the episodes, your word-of-mouth advertising. That uh, gets more people to listen to the show. And get involved in this conversation we're having about the Green Bay Packers, which is a great way for all of us, me included, to become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.